On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about companies that are changing their logos, changing their names, changing their products, stopping producing certain products out of concern about things maybe being offensive. Is this a risky business maneuver if you spent lots of time, lots of money, lots of effort to build your brand? We'll talk about that. We're talking with David Sweet, the MP for Flamborough Glanbrook, about a suggestion he has made that we dump the lockdowns and go back to the green zone. Not that he's saying COVID doesn't exist. To the contrary, just that the lockdown is causing lots of other problems that maybe we are ignoring that we need to pay more attention to. We'll let him explain that as well. And we're talking about the Canadian Navy. We don't talk about the Navy or military stuff all that much. We don't live near the oceans. But this country is looking to spend billions of dollars on 15 new warships. Should we? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, if you were paying attention to news anywhere, and it was a story that was everywhere, you probably heard that Dr. Seuss Enterprises is planning to stop printing six of Dr. Seuss's books. The legendary children's author has six books that... They say they were citing examples where there were wrong and harmful images that were in those books. And what they meant is racist, as some have described. Others are a little, maybe not going that far, maybe saying could be changed or something else. Nonetheless, they've decided we're we're just shutting the whole operation down on these six books. Last week, it was Hasbro, the toy company that was in the news, when it announced that Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head would now simply go by and be sold by the asexual potato head. No Mr. or Mrs. One gender potato. Some months back, you will probably remember that Aunt Jemima was removed from the shelves, replaced by the apparently less offensive Pearl Milling Company syrup. Okay. In each of these cases, what we find is we have a company that has decided to sacrifice name recognition, sacrifice brand connections potentially, And through that, I guess, potentially sales in order to be more progressive, less offensive to people. Is this a wise business move? Is this a necessary business move? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Love having him on here. Marvin, how are you this evening? Thank you. Uh, look, in all the in, in the three examples that I cited, yep. all of them, I think, now I could be wrong on this, but I don't think so. All of them made the changes preemptively before the social media mob descended on them. Is this now, are, are companies now so aware of what could happen that they are going and scouring everything to make sure that there's no chance that they end up on the wrong side of some social media movement? Well, I'm going to say maybe. Uh, Now, you probably don't know this, but back in 2017, First Lady Melania Trump, um, to help out a library, donated the whole catalog of Dr. Seuss books to the children's part of this library. I'm going to say it was in New York City, but it was in that northeastern quadrant. And the shipment of books were sent back to her with a note that said, we don't list these books because they promote racism and, and false ideas, which came as quite a shock to Melania. She was just trying to do something nice and promote children's reading. Um, so the companies have been seeing people complaining about these things. In the case of Aunt Jemima, even though the modern version of Aunt Jemima was a, 
an African-American woman dressed uh, as normally as possibly can with some pearls around her neck. She wasn't a, a slave who was cooking for somebody else, which was what the original image looked like. Or, or in the case of Mr. Potato Head, um, you know, we're, we're just not going to say that they're gender specific. You can design the potato head. Always you could design the potato head any way you want. If you want the ear for the nose and the, the eyes for an ear, hey, that's up to you to do. You could make it very Picasso-like. But they, they had heard people grumbling, well, you're just perpetuating stereotypes. So they've taken actions. And I, I do think it is an interesting touchstone of our society uh, there are some people who say, look, a classic is a classic. Just don't, don't get yourself in a knot over this. Uh, for instance, I, I don't think we're about to turn to the nice people who print the Bible and say, you know, in uh, Jeremiah he says something about having slaves. Uh, we should expunge that from the Bible. The Bible should go from all of its books. Let's go to throw three or four of those books away. I, you know, it's a kind of a take-it-or-leave-it thing, and I just think it's very interesting. Dr. Seuss himself was a very positive man in many ways. He was embracing a worldview of, of uh, trying to help and empower children. Uh, many of these characters are, are not specifically racist, but his drawings, it was his drawings in which in many cases he was depicting uh, uh, First Nations people and others that would be people from uh, Asia, not, not African American, but people from Asia with the slanted eyes, what have you. And um, at the time he did them, they didn't seem racist, but today we look at it and say, ooh, 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 and this is why they've taken this action. And look, in some of these cases, I mean, there have been examples, um, you know, the Cleveland Indians, the baseball team, right. and they've said that they're going to be changing the name. And, you know, you look at that and you think, well, you know, the, the story behind the name may actually be complimentary. It was about, a, yeah. apparently, the story is Alex Sokalexis was the native in, indigenous player who was the best player on the team, and they named the nickname became the Indians because of him. However, times change, and we don't really know the history, and so it sounds like it's a racist term. But these companies, the other ones, they have spent years and millions of dollars building the brand recognition with either the logo or the name or whatever else, is it, is it risky for them to make this move or is it risky for them not to make this move? If you're sitting in the boardroom, what are you telling them? Well, it, it's, it's very much a coin flip here. You, you, you mentioned the, uh, the Cleveland Indians, but think of the Edmonton Eskimos, which is now known as the Edmonton Football Club. Yep. They don't actually have a name, I don't think, just yet. They're still investigating that. You, you invest a decades building a brand, building the logo, promoting the name. You have maybe mascots. You've, you've sponsored various events to build the name. And to then walk away from all that brand equity overnight is a, quite a risky move. Now, I'll tell you candidly, the Pearl Milling Company does not roll off the tongue quite the same way no. as Aunt Jemima. And if you were to see the logo, and you can actually go online and see the logo, it's a lovely mill by a stream, and you can see the water wheel going, and you can almost hear the flower being ground. <laughs> but it's not, it's not a terribly distinctive-looking logo, or, or say it differently, it's a very forgettable-looking logo as it goes. Now, I think uh, Quaker Oats, which are the people who own the Aunt Jemima brand, are going to be fine with this because it's actually not a highly competitive category. Other than the store brand, normally they only carry two brands, the sort of generic store equivalent and whatever Quaker Oats puts out. So they'll be fine. They'll, they'll get through this. They didn't change it in February for Pancake Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday. They're going to actually formally change this in June. 
which is not a big pancake buying time. And then when you do need pancakes, you'll be confronted with, do I buy the brand name? Do I buy the generic? So they'll be fine. But I do think Dr. Seuss is very interesting. For, for many people, they have very fond memories of learning to read with Dr. Seuss books. Think of the classic Cat in the Hat as an example. Um, you know, should we be removing this? And I, I will give them this credit. You know, you mentioned earlier, maybe they could redraw these things. It would be like saying, well, I don't like that Rembrandt painting, so can we just erase the sure. corner over here that bothers me and leave the rest of it? You have to do it on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. You either take it all and put a disclaimer or some explanation about while, as you read this book, remember these images were done at a different time, so on and so forth, or you say not to be. And this is what the Seuss group did. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin, while there are certainly uh, ones that probably have worked or will work, I, I got to say, when the Mr. Potato Head was one was announced last week, the response that I saw, rather than being a lot of people applauding their progressiveness and all the rest, it was largely derision and mockery. Can it, can something like this, even when you think you're doing it for the right reasons, can it backfire on you if you're a company? Oh, yes. Now, absolutely. Now, I think the derision and mockery is probably because people don't quite understand it you're still going to have a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head character on the boxes, what have you. But what they're really trying to do now, Hasbro's trying to do, is talk about this being Potato Head family. And you'll buy a kit and you'll make potato heads, and if your vision of a family is uh, led by two women, that's fine. If it's led by two men, that's fine. And so on and so forth. You can make your family whatever it is. It doesn't have to be Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. So the characters are still going to exist, but the, the packaging, they're just going to drop the, pro, the, the name in the front, the moniker in front, no longer Mr. or Mrs. But yes, derision can come about. Now, I, I still think um, in this day and age, uh, people are going to buy the toy in part to co connect to their children. In other words, I had one of these when I was a kid. You're going to have one of these. Scott, you probably had a barrel of monkeys when you were a kid. I Maybe did. At some point, you gave barrel of monkeys to your children to say, hey, I had these. Let's, we, you know, let's work together on this. Or Monopoly, which has been a family game passed down from generation to generation. So I'm not sure it's going to change all that much. But for those people who are worried about political correctness run amok, this, this story, especially with the Potato Head family, really did touch a nerve. You know, have we really gotten that far to this, that calling Mr. and Mrs. is wrong? And, and these are difficult judgment calls. I don't, I don't uh, envy anyone in business having to figure out which way to go. I don't think it's going to, again, harm them that much. The toy itself isn't changing in any significant way. But um, it does show you that people are more sensitive now than ever before to the, the, the different options out there in our culture. Well, and here's where it becomes, I think, really confusing if you own a company. Um, we hear criticism regularly, and I don't think it's out of line at all, that, you know, certain TV shows, certain movies, we yeah. just heard about the Golden Globes that doesn't have enough representation of minorities. Yeah. All right, now you've got Cream of Wheat, for example. Now, I looked up the Cream of Wheat logo today because I vaguely remembered it, and it's an African-American man wearing a chef's hat. I was looking at it online, Marvin. I didn't look that closely, but I didn't at first blush see anything that was racist about it. It was an African-American man wearing a chef's hat, but that has come under fire apparently, and they're looking at changing it. Do you run the risk that you can now take out the 
people of color or the minorities from logos. And then people turn around and say, well, why don't you have any representation from of people of color? Like it's, it seems like at times you could end up spinning your wheels and not knowing which way to go. Well, and again, let's just say that Canada today and the United States as well has a diversity. So the argument might be, well, why is it an African-American man? Why isn't it someone who's uh, uh, East Indian? Why isn't it someone who's Chinese? Why does it always have to be uh, uh, black lives that matter? Why can it not be the others? And, and you do run this risk of never being able to please everybody. So I think what you have to do when you're, when you're talking about brand identity is come up with an identity that you feel is going to work and that you can say, look, we've thought about this. We've considered these things. Uh, yes, it's an African-American man in a chef's have hat serving you cream of wheat. But in our advertising, we're going to show people of different cultures enjoying a bowl of cream of wheat and get around this. Um, I, I've seen advertising that not only talks about uh, ethnicity, but now it's important that I have people, say, in wheelchairs or people who have different mm -hmm. abilities represented, not only genders, different ages. And, and it does start to get hard because how, how can you do that all in 30 seconds? Um, so but we've seen that. We've seen some commercials lately where it seems as though some of the companies are trying to make sure they cover every base in that 30-second commercial to the point where you almost don't know what it is they're selling because it seems they're just trying to make sure they haven't left anybody out. And, and the, the intent may yeah. be great, but I'm not sure always you know what the product was you just watched a commercial for. And, and, you know, even extends into politics. If the prime minister comes to town to make an announcement, mm. people are recruited to stand in the background, and they've got to have a blend of men and women and tall and short and somebody in a wheelchair and somebody signing. And, you know, I, I get it, and I love inclusivity, but at some point, you know, it, it's not uh, one chair reserved for everybody. So these are difficult decisions. I give the companies credit for trying to deal with them. I wish we wouldn't necessarily jump on them from trying to do something good. Mm -hmm. But then at other times, you've got to say, does that really make a difference? And are you just dealing with the window dressing of the issue, or are you dealing with the substance of the issue? Minefield for sure. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be in the minefield with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, my next guest renewed a discussion, gave new life to a discussion that's been percolating for some time now. Actually, percolating is probably not the right word for percolating sort of suggests that something's been on the back burner, not really being paid attention to. This has been a front burner issue for many people for a long time. It's the idea of should we end lockdowns? Are the lockdowns ultimately helping? or hurting or what's the balance between those two things because you know it's it's a i think it's a fair discussion to have there's a lot of people who will have a lot of strong opinions but you can make an argument that the lockdowns and people have that there are spin-off issues that we're not really thinking about or not talking about but where's the balance well as i say he uh, he brought this up again and he says yes lockdowns should end we should get back to some sort of normal. He is David Sweet, the MP for Flamborough Glanbrook, and he joins me now. David, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Well, you, you I'm guessing, had to know when you said this today that you may stir a little bit of controversy and poke a stick into the hornet's nest a little bit. Yeah, I sure did. Um, this has been something that I've been researching since last August. Um I've been, I've, uh, I'm like a lot of people, I've read more virology and epidemiological papers and uh, PhDs comments than uh, maybe what is healthy for any individual human being. <laughs> and, uh, you know, looked at the data, 
uh, looked at the uh, outcomes, um, listened to constituents who um, are scared to go to the hospital, who have had their uh, had their treatments postponed, uh, had their cancer screenings limited. Um, listened to local um, uh, psychologists who have said that there's a, a continuing diminishing of mental health um, and uh, a rise of um, suicidal thoughts. And then there's the broader issue of just what makes us human. Um, you know, the whole notion that, uh, you know, we, we come together and that's part of our identity of, you know, graduations, anniversaries, funerals, christenings, bar mitzvahs, um, Valentine's Day dinner, all those things are gone. And um, they're much of what makes us human. So we weren't denying that COVID-19 isn't a very serious virus. In fact, in my opening comments, I made it very clear that it is very serious and we need to have very serious uh, strategies to make sure that those who are most vulnerable are looked after. But those that are, are the least vulnerable, uh, people who are under age 65, who don't have any pre-existing conditions, need to have some semblance of normalcy so that they don't have other issues that happen in their life rather than um, what we've seen right now that our whole you know, public health uh, strategy is focused on one virus. And, and for the record, uh, there are certainly people, and I would say probably quite a few people who agree with you. I, I read a piece from a, a former Lieutenant Colonel in the Canadian military who was in emergency management. And he has argued this for some time now. He says every school and business should be open. And the places like that are high risk, like long-term care homes and seniors homes, where the majority of the people who are very sick or dying, they should be locked down. The problem is even if his idea is right, is it constitutional? Could we demand that if you are over 70, you remain in lockdown, but everyone else can go back to their normal life? How do we do that? Well, look, um, right now we're demanding that the entire population stay locked down. And uh, we weren't suggesting to lift the entire lockdown anyway. I mean, we were saying, let's move Ontario to green, where there still is significant uh, restrictions where there's still a, a public health mandate to sanitize your hands, to use a mask indoors, uh, all those things that we know are right and good when we're trying to avoid a virus. Um, but I don't think we need to isolate our seniors to the point where uh, they're crushed either. I think if we develop a strategy uh, where we have contact tracing, where we have rapid testing, uh, where we don't have a movement of staff uh, we're going to have a safe environment for our, our long-term care facilities. And by the way, th those aren't the only congregant settings. I mean, we have right here in Hamilton, we have a very serious situation with the Salvation Army where we, we need more protection as well, uh, looking after people who are, are homeless. Uh, and so all those areas where we have highly vulnerable people, where, they're, where they congregate, we need to put more resources and more efforts into it. We have the data uh, now for the past year, we know what we need to do. We just need to do it. Would we not, though, run a substantial risk if we went back even to green of taking the numbers way back up so now it becomes a huge, huge problem like we saw a couple months ago? I mean, we've got the numbers down. Would this not run the risk that we'd go right back to there? Scott, uh, I don't see any correlation. Uh, look, uh, Toronto is the most locked down jurisdiction in North America. And we had cases rising just a few weeks ago while it was locked down. 
So I, I don't see any direct correlation between the lockdown anymore and our reduction of cases. What I do see, and and what the and what the uh, 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 research bears out, is that if you will look after those people who are vulnerable, uh, those are the people that you need to protect because those cases. And and by the way, we need to differentiate between cases. A positive test is counted as a case. So if you're uh, 17 years old and you test positive, that's counted as a case. That is profoundly different than if you're 79 years old and you test positive. You're now taking two people that are on the opposite spectrums of risk. So, for example, something that's near and dear to your heart. We have youth hockey that isn't even being played here in Ontario. And these young people are at low to zero risk, and uh, we're taking away a huge portion of their life. You know, you, you look, at we're older, but a, a child who's in school who might be seven, eight, or nine and can't participate in intramural sports for a year, that's 10% of their life, 15% of their life. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the months of the pandemic, one of the opinions that I have heard thrown out there now and again is that we should let people be responsible for themselves. If you want to go out, you do it your own. you do it at your own risk. Is that a reasonable position to take or is that irresponsible when you do have a pandemic going on? Well, look, there's a dimension of that, but but um, let me say this, that that's limited to who else you decide to come in contact with. Um, of course, if I'm, if I'm the only one at risk, then I can make those kind of decisions. And I don't come from a totally libertarian position like that. I think we have to look at the whole spectrum of it. Obviously, I would not if my if my dad and my mom were alive, I wouldn't go out and, you know, uh, have the opportunity if it was to go to a bar and meet with six people and then come back and visit them. I'd make sure that I, I distanced from them because I knew that, that they would be in the category of high risk. So I think, you know, there's some, some truth to that, but, that mean, but it also means that I take responsibility for who I radiate it to as well, who I'm going to come in contact with. Well, and it does require yeah. responsibility. And, and I don't know that everybody in society is going to exhibit that. No, that's that's true. Uh, but by the same token, government shouldn't take the other um, other end of the spectrum either, and, and distrust everybody as well. And I think that's that's another part of it. If I may, just highlight two things. Sure. Number one, I've seen over and over again journalists and individuals who are asking for data that will prove their points in regards to you know, different areas of lockdowns, et cetera. Because you know we have we've had circumstances where we have businesses open on one side of the street and lockdown on the other side of the street. So people are saying, look, you know, give us some data, but you know, how you can justify uh, this or how you can justify moving thousands of people through Walmart and Costco, and yet the small business guy who's fully prepared to limit three people in his store can't open. Um, so, so that's frustrating for people. Uh, and the other aspect is that, you know, we've, we've just talked earlier about the physical, psychological, and sociological damage, but what about the 100,000 restaurants that are closed now and will probably never open again? Or the $135 billion of debt that small businesses have picked up, and much of it, by the way, has been because they wanted to be compliant with the government uh, uh, safety policies, so they, they brought in PPE, sanitation, plexiglass barriers, and they assumed that with these safety protocols they could be in business, and um, they, they weren't allowed. And so if they feel betrayed... I. I sympathize with them. There's a 
and you can't tell me that if you've put your life savings into a business and you need to lose it, that isn't a serious concern for mm. physical and mental health afterwards. I did see a, a meme on Facebook today. Um, it was a woman holding a sign that said, and this is the quote, put the politicians on minimum wage, close down their business, deny them healthcare, isolate them and watch how fast things change. Now it's pretty cheeky. I understand that. But do you think there's anything to it? If if all the effects that were going to, uh, onto the private sector were being felt by the people making decisions, would we be making the same decisions? Well, I think my colleague Roman Babbard did exactly that. He moved a motion in the House of Commons that all the members of provincial parliament should go to the uh, CERB level of income uh, in, until the uh, lockdowns lifted. Um, of course, uh, that did not get unanimous consent in the house, but his message was got was, the opposite was, was just, yeah, that's right. Yeah. They actually came after him, but you know, his, his point was made that, uh, look, we're, you know, if you're going to say we're in this together, it's, it's mutual sacrifice. And, um, and, and I, I appreciate citizens who, who actually see that, that that's not the case. And, um, you know, that I, again, that, that discredits government. I think the lack of transparency, the lack of data, the lack of trusting citizens, trusting entrepreneurs that to keep their shops safe, um, all leads to a distrust of government. And that's not what we need right now. What we need in a pandemic is, is trust in government, is, is trust that, you know, we're, we're doing the right thing, that it's based on science. It's based on the accumulated data that's happened, not just in Canada, but, you know, we have jurisdictions all over the world where we've gathered data and understand that, you know, the, the most vulnerable are the ones that we need to protect. We only have a minute or so left here, but you, you, you're making the, this suggestion around the same time we're hearing rumblings of some medical officers of health actually suggesting the complete opposite, that we go back to the gray, that it's time for another lockdown, that April is going to bring the third wave and it's going to be the worst yet. How does a politician like yourself argue the case against a doctor when this is, well, in part anyway, or in large measure, a medical issue? You know, Scott people elect us to do just that every day. That's what committees do in the House of Commons and in, uh, in Queen's Park. We listen to all the experts on an issue, the, the broad plethora of them, and people expect us to make decisions, wise decisions on their part on policy. And I'm not discrediting any of these docs, any of these PhDs or anything. What I'm saying is that we need to have a broader vision than just COVID. We need to understand that people that are, are, have reduction in cancer screenings. Look, at one oncologist has already said in Toronto that he is concerned that there's going to be a tsunami of cancer after this because of the diminishment of cancer screening. That's just one area, let alone all the rest of it and the mental health that we've talked about, as well as cardiac care, et cetera. That the government, by the way, last year was transparent on for one month and was actually publishing numbers where, you know, I remember uh, Minister of Health, uh, had mentioned after just one month that 35 cardiac patients had likely died as a consequence of lack of access to treatments. But you don't hear that anymore. You don't hear that transparency anymore. That's a big concern. Flamborough Glenbrook MP David Sweet, appreciate the time. Appreciate you joining us tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think for many of us, there is a belief, fair or not, but there's a belief that the that things the government does often costs more, maybe considerably more than what you might be able to do if you hired a company yourself to do it. And again, fair or not, we're all familiar with those old stories, you know, the ones about the Pentagon spending $5,000 on a toilet seat or 
$300 for a screw or something like that. Well, this whole thing came to mind the other day, and it's not exactly tied in, but it came to mind the other day when I read a story about what Canada is going to have to pay to get a new fleet of Navy ships. We're going to be on the hook for $60 billion for 15 new ships. Oh, wait, wait, that's wrong. That's the government's number. The Parliamentary Budget Office came out with a different number. That's the one that oversees everything. So the government says it's going to cost us $60 billion. The Parliamentary Budget Office says the number is actually $17 billion higher than that, which is how much the cost has risen since the last estimate was given. The costs are going up and up and up. That is a lot of money. Why are we so, do we need a Navy? First of all, let's be honest. Do we really need this? And why do we seem to be, this happens a lot. Why do we seem to be so bad at getting stuff to happen and finding ways to get planes or ships or whatever done in this country? David Perry is the vice president and senior analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He joins us now. David, thank you so much for doing this today. I appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Uh, let's start with the broader issue here. We're talking about whether we should be spending $77 billion and probably counting on 15 new warships. Does Canada need 15 new warships? So I, I think right now uh, Canada does need to replace its Navy. Uh, I think that we need to replace the ships that we have now with a fleet that, that's uh, really going to be able to give Canada some effective combat power and be able to, to go abroad and, and, and uh, help support Canadian foreign policy. So I definitely think that we need 15 ships. Uh, I think they need to, to be um, very good ones. Um, you know, between here and there, there's probably some room to to discuss and debate what specifically, exactly how good they need to be and whether or not they need to be, you know, 60 or $77 billion worth. But I don't think there's any question that they, we do need one. Um, it's a time right now where there's a, a global arms race happening at sea and Canada is a country with an enormous coastline uh, mm-hmm. and extraordinarily dependent on overseas trade. Um, I think probably needs a Navy more than a lot of other countries in the world do. Because I think the quiet belief and maybe not even quiet at times is among Canadians is that if we ever got into any real trouble, the States is going to come up and bail us out and bring their military up here. I mean, is that a misplaced bit of trust? Is that a, uh, a, a something that we should, that, that it's taking away our responsibility by looking at it that way? Well, I think given the closeness and the, the breadth and the depth of our defense relationship with the United States, um, that's absolutely uh, true to a degree that the United States uh, will work in conjunction with Canada and, and probably most respects to, to help uh, provide for the two of our country's security. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're watching play out right now with vaccines, that there's a limit to that. Um, you can mm-hmm. be incredibly close and have very interconnected relationships, uh, but the United States is still going to take care of number one uh, first, uh, and then they you know can help us afterwards. So I mean, if you think of the vaccine scenario we're seeing play out right now, um, if it comes down to it, I don't think there's any question that the United States Navy would act in the exact same way that the U.S. government is with vaccines right now. You, you protect Americans first, and when you got that squared away, then you can help Canada. Um, I think Canada needs to have its own independent ability to do some of that ourselves. I know, it's an excellent point. I mean, the comparison is an excellent one. Um, but we could not ever, could we, maybe I'm being negative here, I don't know, but we could never create a big enough or powerful enough military to truly effectively defend ourselves in the event of a true hostile situation, could we? It would all kind of depend on what the parameters of that situation uh, would look like. But I I think one way to think about it is 
Um, if you have a successful armed forces that is quite capable and everybody knows that, um, then ideally you don't ever, ever get into a situation where you have to defeat anybody. Mm-hmm. Yet you can apply what uh, in military terms is called deterrence so that you, you make it clear to the other person that even if they will ultimately uh, be able to win and beat you, it'll be so difficult to do it and it'll take them so long and cost so much blood and treasure to them that they don't bother trying. So, And fundamentally, I think that's what a country like ours can achieve. You can have enough military capability, you can have a capable enough Navy, um, that if it came right down to it, China or Russia, um, yes, I think if we were one-on-one with them, um, a lot of situations in which we would lose. But the idea is to make sure that the other person knows it's going to be awfully darn hard uh, for them to do it. And, and hopefully that in and of itself helps in part dissuade them. What is the state of our current fleet right now? I know it's old. Um, is it I mean, is it is it still seaworthy? And if so, for how much longer? I mean, are we really at the end of the lifespan? So important to, to keep in mind that uh, what we're replacing now uh, is the fleet that we had kind of in two parts uh, since the nineteen late 1970s, 1980s. So three of them were destroyers, which are bigger ships that carried more helicopters um, that provided an air defense mission. Those ships uh, have been taken out of service already. So in the last couple of years, um, they're already gone. So of the 15 ships we had as of 10 years ago, three of them are, have already been retired. The remaining 12 were the Halifax-class frigates. Um, they're getting up to uh, at or over their midlife point. They went through a big uh, upgrade uh, process and went through a big life extension process, which basically tried to take uh, ships that were built in the er- early 90s uh, with technology that involved old-style computers. That they weren't fully digital and try to put in some modern systems into those and, and deal with some issues like rust and some other things to help them keep running. So they're, they're combat capable now. They're, they're good ships at the moment, but they are already starting to get long in the tooth. Um, and as you're saying in your, your introduction, um, the older things get, the more they need to be replaced. You know, it's just like a car. You can get, uh, you can have an old car, you can keep it serviceable. Um, but you know, you're not going to get one of those adapted cruise control or other fancy Mm. features you can get on something newer. Um, and the same kind of thing applies in a warship. It'll run. Um, it won't necessarily have uh, all the best technology. So if we've known for some time that we, that they have, I mean, we all know they have a lifespan. And if we know that we're getting into that lifespan and getting to a point when we're going to have to do something, why have we not done something yet? Why are we still talking about what we should be doing? Uh, that's an answer that could take a couple shows to get through in full detail, but the <laughs> short version, I would say, is uh, uh, you know, fundamentally in the, from about 1989 through to the mid-2000s, the, for a whole bunch of reasons, the Department of National Defense didn't have very much money to buy new gear, um, and when it didn't have money to buy new gear, it couldn't um, start a project to do so. And so we kind of took about 10, 15 years off um, of all the, not just actually buying uh, replacement equipment, but... Uh, doing the planning work to do that. And in the, in time, in the, in the meantime, while all that was happening, um, the department had enough money to do the upgrade that's in train now, but it didn't have enough money to start um, the replacement project early enough. And then a little over a decade ago, um, there was a realization that so much time had gone by when we weren't buying anything, uh, that on the government side, they'd sort of lost touch with what uh, industry was capable of doing. And on the industry side, um, in St. John, New Brunswick, where I grew up, um, the shipyard was literally disassembled and turned into a, a plant making sheetrock. 
so the, the whole ability to do this in the country uh, had gone away fundamentally and is, is having to be built right now, um, both on the industry side and building the actual stuff and on the government side and managing it and doing all the planning work. And I think that's kind of the, the genesis of why this is taking so long. One of the proposals that is being floated and uh, floated, yeah, okay, ship pun, didn't mean to, but there you go, um, <laughs> but is that we scale back our preferences a little bit, we scale back what we're looking at and go with something a little less expensive. Um, there is that old line that everybody knows, it says you get what you pay for. Uh, I don't know if that's accurate when it comes to military equipment, but is considering what you said off the top about our needs to be able to help our, you know, to oversee our foreign policy and have things that work and everything. Is it a good idea to be looking at scaling back or is it a better idea for us to say it's going to cost, but we really got to get the good stuff? You know, I guess it all, it all fundamentally comes down to uh, whether you, you kind of agree with me that it's an important time to have uh, a Navy that's going to be capable and able to, to go and, and, and deliver uh, foreign policy objectives for Canadians. I mean, certainly, you know, as you're saying, um, you can save money in lots of different ways, but you fundamentally do, you know, with plus or minus, you know, pick pick a number, 10 or 15 percent. You can save money, but you're, you're getting what you're paying for. So the comment, um, I had a conversation with the parliamentary budget officer uh, last week on, on my podcast, uh, and his comment was, if you were to try and put all of the equipment and all of the gear that's going into the ship that we're looking to build onto the other type of ship from the United Kingdom that he did the comparison with, it was going to be much cheaper. His best guess was that that ship would sink because there's so much more stuff that we're getting um, that simply wasn't going to go into uh, that other option um, that's much cheaper. It's much cheaper because it's much smaller uh, and it has much less sophisticated weapons, radars, and all those types of things. And, I, you know, absolutely, we're in a, a situation right now where the government's running multi-hundred billion dollar deficits um, and we've got economic problems and somebody's going to need to to deal with those in some respect at some point. Um, I, but if we do get into making those decisions, we would have to recognize that we would be building a fundamentally very different and very much less capable Navy than the one that we are intending to build right now. Yeah. And, and I think that a ship that sinks upon delivery is probably a bad ship. You know, I'm no expert, but uh, that was, I think that, that would seem a fair assessment. <laughs> Um, and again, I, I understand, to use another example, and, I, and I'm very clear that LRT systems, uh, public transit systems in cities are not military grade, and we're not talking about exactly the same thing. But across Canada, we have seen a number of LRT systems start up, and cities and provinces are always looking for ways to shave a few dollars here or there. And we've had a lot of problems with the LRT systems in Edmonton, in Ottawa, um, in Waterloo, we've seen these things. Would we be better off saying, you know, I know we want to get 15 ships, but let's get 10 ships that are really high quality and great ships and live with those 10 or to cut back and do the 15 and cut back and go back a little bit. It's a tough question to, to answer fundamentally, um, in part because ha there's uh, a quality all of its own just to having a quantity. Um, so especially in, in these military circumstances, because you always go through because they operate so much. Like it's not like having a car, which you drive for you know, well, under COVID, you drive for 1% of the day in my household. Yeah. But uh, if you think about a normal, like, like working commuting lifestyle, you drive your car for a very, very small fraction of the day. And then it sits in parks and you're not using it all that much with a ship. It's pretty different when you're actually operating it. The thing is going 24 and seven. Um, and what, when you have that kind of utilization, it means that you need to go through a pretty regular and predictable maintenance cycle. So the kind of the rule of thumb is 
you need three of something to be able to reliably have one uh, that could actually go to sea between having to do maintenance as well as training the next crew that would go out. So when you kind of you run through all the the math on that, um, and again recognizing that Canada's got um, some of the largest real estate uh, from a coastal point of view in the entire planet, uh, our foreign policy has sends our navy uh, off the coast of Singapore as well as into the eastern Mediterranean and up into the Arctic. Uh, Fifteen ships is a pretty good number for Canada. You could certainly you know scrape by and make do with less, um, but you you fundamentally can't be in two places on the globe at one time with one ship. There would be no reason, as we're talking about price, there would be no reason logically that the price of these things are going to go down over time, correct? Like there's no, waiting does not serve us any benefit to try and save money. They're all, the price is always going to go up, right? Essentially, yeah. The, the, it's not the case that, um, you know, for the types of things that we're looking at, that there's some sort of production line uh, where we can just pick your order and take the next certain uh, numbers that are coming off of somebody else's production line. If you're just right for the right, right moment, um, the pricing conditions are going to get better. So what you're saying, I think, is, is fundamentally um, accurate. One more thing, and you just mentioned, you know, that you grew up in St. John, and, and, and that's where they had a shipyard that was disassembled. If Canada was to get into this a little more, into the shipbuilding. I mean, you see it in European countries, in, in Sweden, in Finland, they have them there, in Germany. I mean, there's 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 shipyards different places in the world. If Canada was to really get into this with government support, could that help us to bring the cost down? But also, could we be a place that then other places would come to for shipbuilding? Could we, could we in other words, could we, it's going to cost us the money, but could we then bring in some extra money to help pay for some of these things? So potentially, um, just as an example, the the, uh, the frigates that I talked about that we modernized and life extended, uh, the company that did that sold that same basic technology package to the New Zealand Navy and upgraded their ships for them. Um, you know, it wasn't a huge contract, but it was you know fairly significant amount of money and work that happened out in uh, on the west coast in British Columbia uh, on behalf of the New Zealand Navy and parts of the technology that went into both the modernization on the, the frigates we have right now uh, when they were upgraded, as well as the technology that went into building them in the first place back in the, in the late 80s into the 90s, uh, Canadian companies sold all over the planet. Um, we didn't build more of those full sets of ships and sell them to other customers, but some of the systems um, for managing the propulsion system, some of the communication systems, that technology has been, been exported all over the planet. So uh, to a significant extent, the answer to your question is yes. Um, you know, it's, probably unlikely given the way the marketplace works that uh, we would be selling an exact replica of the kind of ship that we're going to build for the Canadian Navy to, to somebody else. Um, but again, you know, I think right now the vaccine examples are a good, uh, a good illustration of the benefit that you get of having your own domestic source of supply, um, which might mean in some cases you're paying a little bit more. The, the, that plant's not quite as efficient. You might not get the absolute best price. Um, but you're not relying on somebody else to make something for you when it's convenient for them. And that's a pretty important thing, I think, to, that, that is worth, uh, it's difficult to put an exact uh, price tag on that. But having the ability to do yourself, uh, do something for yourself uh, when you want it is, is uh, fairly important. David Perry, Vice President and Senior Analyst with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for offering your insight on this. Great time with you. It is uh, it is a fascinating story because we don't talk about the Navy, the Canadian Navy, much on this show. A, because we're, I mean, yeah, we have Lake Ontario, but we're kind of landlocked here. You're not really getting the Navy ships in this part of the, 
I mean, we've got the Haida, I suppose, but we, we don't have a ton of Navy stuff going on around here. So it's not something that really resonates with us. But when you're talking about prices going up by $17 billion for these ships over a period of time, and you hear David talk about how, you know, we need these things, whether we want them or not. You know, I know people will say, well, I'm a, I'm not into military stuff. I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in military equipment. Well, that's, you know, we can have that discussion. Um, the reason you are capable in some cases of not being interested in military stuff is because you're safe because we have a military here that gave you your freedom to do that. I know it's a little bit ironic, but that's what it is. Nonetheless, we, we, we need some kind of Navy, I think. I, I, I think that my question to him near the top there about the idea that the states will come to our rescue immediately upon any trouble, probably true, but you know, we got to provide something, don't we? We got to be able to defend ourselves somehow or inter- get involved in some way. I don't think we can become a completely defenseless country just to save a few bucks. That, that, that seems to me to be a ludicrous domestic foreign home policy thing. Yeah, we'll just trust that the states will come to our defense if anything happens. Well, as he pointed out, we said that probably about vaccines and how's that going for us? So, you know, it it would just be nice. We were talking with David Sweet last hour. We're talking about lockdowns and decisions by governments and everything else. It would be nice if at some point we could do some things where at the end of the process... We didn't say, well, stalling for five years cost us an extra $20 billion. How about we, if we know we've got to do this, how about we do it and save the long-term money that we otherwise will just keep accruing and keep having to pay? Look, I'm not, I'm not a big, we got to cut things. We're, we're, we're spending money like too much. But if we have to do this, let's do it and not in five years have another $20 billion on top of the bill. And if we don't have to do it, then don't do it. Then dump it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.